look around baseball, and I know it's easy to roll your eyes at the sustained success stuff, but there are fan bases that go through years and years of not being relevant, and it's brutal. And baseball's doing nothing about it. And, and, and they won't even, owners won't even speak out on it. So having a team that is competitive, it's great, and it should be appreciated. Still, though, you, you want to beat that drum for a World Series because it's, it's what the Cardinals' brand is. Hello, everybody. Happy holidays and welcome to a special Best Podcast in Baseball brought to you by Closet by Design of St. Louis. Recently, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch hosted one of its many Sports on Tap events. This one, in mid-November, at Bally Sports Live in Ballpark Village. We invited readers to a panel discussion on all things St. Louis sports, including, of course, the Cardinals and the hot stove and labor talks and everything going on with it. But we also talked about the Blues and Mizzou and SLU and the lawsuit with the NFL, all types of things. Sports columnist Ben Fredrickson hosted the event, and you'll hear his voice first. The panel includes Fredrickson and six other post-dispatch scribes, all of whom you'll recognize. There's Jim Thomas, longtime NFL writer and current St. Louis Blues beat writer. Dave Matter drove in from Columbia, where he's the Mizzou beat writer. Hall of Fame baseball writer Rick Hummel was seated to my left at the panel. Then there's sports columnist Jeff Gordon and Benjamin Hockman, both of whom chime in on baseball topics galore. Here it is, Sports on Tap 2021. Take it away, Ben Fredrickson. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Good evening. Thank you guys for being here. Can everybody hear me okay? All right. We really appreciate you guys coming to our Sports on Tap event. I'm Ben Fredrickson. I'm going to be the uh, unofficial point guard this evening. Uh, introduced our panelists here shortly. And uh, we're just going to talk. We want to thank you guys first and foremost for coming out tonight. Um, it's great to see faces. It's great to be with you guys. It's great to do this in person. Um, we've done some virtual events, and they're great, but it's much better to be here in person. We're still kind of figuring out the, uh, the COVID world, so it's a little different than it might normally be where we're all maybe mingling a little bit more. So we hope this works and we'll, we'll make the most of it. We'll have some fun, um, but it's great to see everybody's faces. First and foremost, before we get started, um, wanted to have some thank yous. Uh, thank you guys for being here, of course. Thanks to our sponsors. You're gonna see them mentioned throughout the night. Ballpark Village for being our, our host. Tracy Rauch uh, and her marketing team at the Post-Dispatch puts these things together. They do a great job. Um, so thank you for them for making this happen. There's some post-dispatch uh, leaders here, um, our editors, Gilbert Bailon, um, Ian Queso is here, our publisher, our sports editor, Roger Hensley is here, and of course our writers. It's really hard, guys, to get all these guys in one place in one night, um, and uh, it takes a lot of scheduling. Um, it takes some guys being here on their vacation days, so we appreciate everybody making it work. Of course, we have some writers' families and friends here as well, um, so thanks to their support. And most importantly, thanks to you guys uh, for, for being here. We're going to start introducing folks. If you guys can hold your applause until everybody's out here. Rick Hummel asked me to say that because he doesn't like to embarrass anybody with the amount of uh, applause that Kamish gets. So we'll go from left to right. We'll start off with our Mizzou beat writer, Dave Matter. And followed by our blues beat writer, Jim Thomas our Hall of Fame baseball writer, Rick the Commish Hummel, our Cardinals lead beat writer, Derek Gould, sports columnist, Jeff Gordon, and sports columnist, Benjamin Hockman. This, go ahead and take a seat, fellas. Yeah, go ahead. Um, this is a 
fascinating time for St. Louis sports, and we're all thankful to have games back and sports rolling. I think at one time, I know I wrote a column about a cake decorator during the pandemic. It was getting pretty thin, so um, we're glad to have sports back. We've got the Cardinals. Um, they've got a historically good defense. They've made a change at manager entering a, a very interesting season. The Blues shot out of the gate. Everything was going right. Now they've hit a bit of a snare. College football and basketball are rolling. The Rams lawsuit. I don't know if you guys are following that. It's up and running. <laughs> I thought you might be interested. We've got a, a beautiful new soccer stadium being built just down the street. Plenty to discuss. So we're going to dive in here. I'm going to pitch a question to each of these guys, and then we're going to kind of go through this quickly because we really, really want to maximize our time with the Q&A. So we'll do the Q&A here a little bit. We'll start off with Cardinals baseball. For, this one's for Derek Gould. Um, Derek, it's the year of the shortstop, the offseason of the shortstop. But it sounds like the Cardinals might not be interested in one. You talked to John Mozeliak at, uh, at the GM meetings. Um, are the Cardinals shopping for a shortstop, or are they going to go internal here? It's a great question because so many of the shortstops are, A, so good. I mean, there, there's a Fab Five there, some of the best shortstops, probably the best shortstop free agent class. And it was a real contrast there at the GM meetings between some of the GMs like Jerry DePoto, uh, Brian Cashman, for example. Some of these guys were talking about, hey, you find room for the best player. Um, either that's a shortstop and you move somebody or you talk to that free agent about moving to another position. They said it's, it's too good of a class to pass on, and yet the Cardinals talked about passing on it um, with a focus on starting pitching mostly. They, you know, that's really where they've spent a lot of their time. Um, does that mean internally? Probably, yeah. It means that the, you know, they have big betting big on Paul DeYoung's bounce back. Um, they obviously have him signed for a few more years. Edmondo Sosa. They also, you know, quietly want to keep the middle infield a little fluid for Nolan Gorman to come up and be the second baseman. He was real limited in Arizona Fall League by a hamstring injury, but overall has hit really well and is the left-handed hitter of their desires. That's what they want. Um, they don't want to go into an auction. They try to avoid auctions. And with few exception, maybe if the bottom comes out of the market for one of those shortstops, they're all going to be auctions. It's a fascinating story. That's a pun intended. See what the, the Cardinals do there. JT, the St. Louis Blues, everything was going great. Vladimir Tarasenko is making me eat crow left and right. He's playing awesome. They can't lose. The Avalanche are struggling. This is looking beautiful. And now what? What's, what's going on with these Blues? They've, they've lost four in a row here. Um, they're, they're, they're getting healthier, but they're not playing better. What's the deal? I think we need to maybe cancel the, at least for now, the, the parade for Market Street. Uh, when they started 5-0 and uh, and were averaging five goals a game, uh, uh, a lot of the feedback that we were getting from fans, uh, they, they thought, oh, Stanley Cup bound. And that's, that's the beauty of uh, fans. We, we tried to tap the brakes a little bit, reminded them that uh, under Mike Yo in 2017-18 uh, season, they started 13-3-1. and and missed the playoffs by uh, one measly point. And uh, so now they, they weren't as good as they were at 5-0-0, and they're not as bad as maybe they look now. But in, in our earliest writing in the, in the Post-Dispatch and STL Today, uh, Jeff Gordon and Tom and myself and the columnists, we pointed out that the, uh, the defense was still something to kind of keep an eye on. And right now the, the defense is uh, leaking some oil here and, and, and some goals. 
So we'll see, but part of it's the beauty of sports. For, for the Blues fans, it's probably driving you nuts, but the, the unpredictability, the unexpected in sports is kind of part of why we all like it, even, even us riders are like it even more. And that's what we're seeing now. It's an 82-game ride this season. We, we haven't seen that since the Stanley Cup year, so uh, I'm sure there'll be some, uh, some curves along the road, twists and turns, and uh, maybe a couple crashes. JT kind of dropped a, an as-first-reported line there. That dates back to uh, when the Blues were making their cup run, and the Post-Dispatch accidentally published uh, a little uh, cup celebration a little too soon. It could have been maybe viewed as a curse, but they went on to, uh, to win. And Tom Timmerman, our colleague, had the best tweet of all time. As-first-reported by the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the Blues won the Stanley Cup. Greatest tweet ever. And we also got to... Uh, Maybe get a little laugh from, from, from Tom Stillman on the ice there, depending on how things played out. This one's for Hoxie. Cardinals, baseball, pitching, pitching, pitching. I can see you all the way down there. Pitching, pitching, hair. pitching. The Cardinals say it's the focus this offseason. We saw it bottom out on them this past season. What do they need? What do they have that you have faith in entering 2022? I mean, it's a great topic, and a lot of us have... By the way, hello, everybody. It's good to see all the fans out there. It's awesome. All the readers of the Post-Dispatch. Um, when you look at the Cardinals pitching, it's as simple as the way John Mosellock says it. Uh, a lot is not enough. Uh, you want as many arms as... He might have said it more eloquently than that, but uh, the idea is simply, if you have five good starters, that's not guaranteed that all five of those guys are going to pitch 30 starts for the year. The Cardinals have four guys, as you probably know, that are locked in to be in the starting rotation. So who's that fifth starter? Is he currently under contract with the St. Louis Cardinals? Is it Alex Reyes? Is it Jordan Hicks? Is it Jake Woodford, Oviedo, et cetera, et cetera? Or is it a fellow like Derek's written about Marcus Stroman? Uh, a lot to like about that pitcher who gets a lot of ground balls, a lot of soft contact. Or is it maybe somebody else, uh, maybe at a lower price point? But the reality is uh, the St. Louis Cardinals need to enhance their starting pitching. And the one thing I'll say, and I've written about it in the post-dispatch, is that I'm really excited to see Alex Reyes as a starter. And the thing is, if they are to get a Marcus Stroman, that might mean that Alex Reyes starts out in the bullpen again. Will he get some starts? I don't know. But I want to see this Alex Reyes thing through, and it's possible that this uh, maximizing 2022 will prevent that. Maximizing 2022. <clears throat> Scherzer reference? Question mark? That was a softball for you to hit out of the park, which you just <laughs> did. All right, Dave. Can we get a round of, Dave for a round of applause for Dave Matter? Drove from Columbia tonight. Dave had the longest drive, and he had to do it after watching the UMKC game. So I think that's like uh, you get time and a half for that I one. I thought we and, weren't going to talk about that. No, I'm going to let them bring that up. Okay. And I think, th I think they'll check that box about the, the, the bad loss for the basketball team. Wait, I want to ask you. Also, he's the college football beat writer of the year. He is. Like, How about should give an another round of applause like for applause Dave for that. College football writer, beat writer of the year. I know his parents are, are in attendance tonight. I want to give them a shout-out. Um, I want to talk to you, Dave, about Eli Drinkwitz. We have seen Eli. He's in year two now. I think his record right now is about 500. Um, he's right at 500. Right yeah. at 500. We've seen brash Eli at SEC Media Days where he's throwing zingers. We've seen humbled Eli Drinkwitz where he's admitting that maybe he stirred expectations a little too fast. What do you make of Eli Drinkwitz 
year two, a bowl game within reach. How's the trajectory? What's it like covering the, the new Mizzou football coach? You know, he's not only 500. The program is 500 since the day Gary Pinkle retired. Barry Odom finished with a 500 record. Eli Drinkwitz is 10-10 and 10 at Missouri. So the program's kind of just stuck in neutral and isn't going up or down necessarily. It's just they're just kind of right there. And, uh, no, he's, an, he's a really interesting cat. I think we've, we've all discovered that off-season Eli is a little different than in-season Eli as far as just his personality and demeanor. He's really been more measured here the last couple of weeks. I think some of that's um, just a little bit humbled by the fact that this, this process is a little bit harder than maybe anyone really imagined, you know, building a consistent winner in the SEC. I, I still think he's got the vision to do it. It's just he needs the players. He needs a little bit of time. He's really been preaching patience, which JT can attest to. Missouri coaches have been doing for decades. Um, and, and really not many of them have really thrived and succeeded. So I, I think he's got the tools to do it. I think we, we also need to remember how young this guy is. This is my 20th season on the Missouri football beat. When I first started, Eli was just getting his driver's license. So just to put in perspective, this is, this is st he's still learning kind of on the go while making $4 million a year. So um, he, he's a really interesting guy. I think he's going to figure it out at some point, and I think he kind of has figured out a lot of it. But it's, it's a tough job. It's a really tough league, and it's only going to get harder. So um, I, I do think they've got a really good chance at winning on Saturday, though. Nine-point underdogs against Florida. Um, they can get bowl eligible if they win, and I, I think they can do it. Who starts at quarterback on Saturday? Good question. Um, it's going to be either Connor Bazelak or Brady Cook. Uh, it, it's those two guys are in the running, and um, I don't I don't know if it's decided yet. All right. This one is for Kamish, our Hall of Fame baseball writer, Mr. Hummel. A Hall of Fame question for the Hall of Famer. I figured that I figured that lined up okay there. People are interested. Yadier Molina. He's going to play at least one more season. He says that could be it, but. He's going to play on past Buster Posey here. Um, how will that maybe affect his Hall of Fame chances? What do you think of Adam Wainwright's Hall of Fame chances? And also, you have a, a say in, in the discussion of some of the former players who are going to be eligible for the Hall of Fame here um, this offseason. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works and your role in that? Well, first on, on Molina, I think he's a Hall of Famer. I also think Buster Posey's a Hall of Famer. So I... I I don't know if it's first battle or not. It doesn't really make any difference to me. I think they're both going to get in. Wainwright, he doesn't have 200 wins yet, and he missed, <laughs> missed a couple of seasons you know, in prime time when he might have piled up some pretty good stats. So I'm, I'm thinking he's a little bit short right now. Uh, this year's election of the regular BBWAA election is noteworthy because it's the last time on the ballot for Kurt Schilling, Barry Bonds, and Roger Clemens, two of whom want to still be on the ballot. Schilling does not want to be on the ballot, but he is. He was the leading vote getter last year. Bonds and Clemens have only gotten just over 60%. You need 75%. I do not think they're going to make it. Um, how will David Ortiz and A-Rod do in their first year? I assume Ortiz will do better because he hasn't been linked to the same PED traffic that, that A-Rod has been linked to. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I think people will, will still not vote for Ortiz as a first ballot guy because he was the DH. I mean, he'll get in, and he deserves to be in. Uh, Scott Rowland is probably the only the other player of interest to 
locally here, and he's been made quite a, a surge the last four years, the four years he's been on. He's up to 53% now after four years, and that, that suggests in six more elections he will get in. I do not think this will be the one. And, but with, you take Bonds and Clemens and Schilling off the ballot, maybe next year might be his year. And what you alluded to, there's two more Hall of Fame elections coming up, presumably in Orlando, the first few days in December, but they may take place virtually if there's a, a lockout of sorts in, in, in Major League Baseball. One involves uh, the really old-time players and, and some old-time Negro League players too, which Negro Leagues have now been sanctioned as Major Leagues as of this past uh, spring and summer. So that, that's a committee I served on and will also be voting on, wherever it's in Orlando or, or not. Um, there'll be 10 players on that ballot. And uh, maybe the ones, that, you know, this is, goes from 1900, even before 1900, and, until about 1950. So uh, there are no living players on that ballot, but the ones who would have a chance to get in are not necessarily players. Like Buck O'Neill was a player, but he did most of his work as a scout and just an ambassador for, for baseball. And Lefty O'Doul won a couple of batting titles with the um, Phillies in the, I guess, 20s. Um, and he's probably the next leading candidate there. There's a second election of players from 1950 to 19, mid-1970s. This, this ballot is loaded. There's 10 guys on there, and of, of interest locally are a whole bunch of them. Uh, Kenny Boyer, my, my longtime crusade to get him in the Hall of Fame continues, but <laughs> I don't know how successful it will be. Minnie Minoso had one year with the Cardinals, most of it spent uh, recovering from crashing into the left field wall at Bush Stadium, is on there, and he's getting a lot of traction. Dick Allen, who spent only one year here, is on the ballot. Jim Cott, who spent a couple, three years here, is on the ballot. Roger Maris, who spent two years here, is on the ballot. Plus, you have Gil Hodges, the great Brooklyn Dodgers first baseman and Mets manager. So that will be a committee that uh, I had, I put together with eight or, eight or ten other people, put that ballot together. I will not be voting on that ballot in the next round here, but I can see anybody coming out of that, that group, or maybe nobody, because a lot of guys are going to get votes, and you still have to get 75% of the ballot on that election, too. So those three ballots that the the Hall of Fame, regular Hall of Fame ballot will be announced Monday, and the results will be announced in, in uh, mid-January. And the other two we'll know in a couple weeks. So a lot to look forward to, and maybe, maybe all to look forward to if there's no <laughs> baseball on the horizon. You referenced that uh, chance of a, of a lockout. I'm sure that we'll get some, some questions about that this evening. Um, will there be a full spring training? Will there be a shortened spring training? Um, I know we have guys on the panel with opinions about what baseball needs to do and also what it can't do if it wants to keep up, try to keep up with these other leagues. We'll ask Jeff Gordon his question, then we're going to open it up to, to Q&A. And Tracy and her team will be bringing microphones around. They're going to be sanitized between, uh, between each question, so we'll make sure that's on the up and up there. Gordo, Doug Armstrong says the Blues Stanley Cup window is still open. Um, do you believe that? And what do the Blues have to do to get another parade before it closes? It's, I, I really think that the Blues had a decent chance of defending their cup before the pandemic struck. Um, now they're trying to get back. What do they have to do? Can they? Yeah, I think the window's still open. I think their younger players are really pretty exciting. The skill level is, is really high. You have, uh, you're seeing Robert Thomas break out, playing a whole game. 
I was a little tough on Robert with my grades last year, but he, he took it to heart, I think, and pretty much <laughs> take the credit for that. He's winning face-offs. He's, he's generating offense. Uh, Jordan Cairo, there's a guy. He's, a, he's got explosive talent. And remember that Jordan missed out on all the fun of the, uh, the cup run. There's Chris Thorburn. He played like a minute and a half all year. And uh, he's, he's backstage after the big party at the riverfront talking to John Hamm in the middle of their five-day drinking binge, just having the time of his life. Jordan Kyber got none of that, and he's, he's, he wants some of that, and he's playing like that. So, and Scott Peruna, that you just saw him make his debut, he's a special talent. Now, the question is, how do you get all of these guys with special ability to play the type of style that, that uh, the Chief wants the team to play? And, and, and can this team play a hybrid between you know, speed and skill, which Thomas, Cairo, Perunovic have, and, and still run over people and, and pressure people, force turnovers, sustain pressure, uh, just tilt the ice over a seven-game series, beat some teams down. Is there still that ability? And I'm going to, and JT will be shocked to find out, I'm going to bring up my guy, Clem Costin, who's uh, the big irritable Russian, who could be another guy that's part of this process. But the challenge is, Two things. One, you got to get them playing the right way. And all those drop passes that we saw against the Coyotes, no look drop passes. Uh, Craig Berube, a little bit of a red ass after that. He, uh, <laughs> he didn't like about the fifth time they did that, I think his head was about to explode. And what is it about going straight the other way that you don't get was pretty much his message uh, again after the game. So um, I, if, can they play that style? Yeah, but they're probably going to have to make a change. You're probably going to have to uh, take some of that, uh, some of the leverage you have with players up front, some skill, whether it's uh, Tarasenko, who, you know, still I think would welcome a trade. Trade some of that off to get, it's one way or another, uh, a, a strong top four type defenseman. And, you know, where would you get one of those guys? Well, I think Seattle's got three of them that are pretty good. And they took them for trade leverage to use this year because they're not, they're not going anywhere this year. They're not the Golden Knights. They're going to be selling some players, I think. So at the end of the day, add a top four D-man. Get those young guys to play more along what the Chief wants. Uh, and I think you can, over the next few years, I still think you can have a team that takes a run. This team is, yeah, some guys are going to age out. Dave, David Perron's going to age out. O'Reilly's no kid. But... You know, man, again, watch Thomas, Cairo, uh, certainly Perunovic and my guy, Clem Costin, if he can just harness that irritability. And, uh, hey, this guy won a cup last year in Russia, and, and, and I'm just waiting for him to, uh, to take that next step. So, Optimistic Gordo. Yeah. I love to Yeah, love trying to, to give people it. hope. I didn't have my sensor button ready for your, for your comment there, so I guess we'll pay the fine. Um, you guys have questions. I don't want to talk. I want to, I want to hear you guys' questions. If you have them for a specific writer, um, we'll direct them. Or if you want you know, multiple guys to weigh in on it, we'll uh, kind of let you guys take it from here this tonight. Tracy, just grab her and be patient, and, and we'll, we'll go with it here. Go ahead. All right, we're ready. Jim or Jeff, uh, where has David Perron gone? <laughs> First off, for those of you wondering, uh, a red ass, the definition of a red ass would be... Uh, a high state of agitation, so. Irritability, uh, I think, Gordon. You probably, you probably figured that out, but uh, I think David Perron is, uh, is, uh, got kind of lost without Ryan O'Reilly when O'Reilly uh, had, the, had the COVID and, and, and missed five or six games. And uh, 
when O'Reilly came back, they, they just, they just kind of couldn't recapture their magic right away. And I think a little bit of second guess here by me on, on Barubi. I, I think he, he split them up too soon. As you, you guys probably aware for the last two, three games, they've been on different lines, except last night as the game was progressing, they got reunited. And you know, those two, they're like, I don't know, Hall and Oates, Hall and Oates, Romeo and Juliet. I mean, they're just used to being together. Remember Halloween a couple of years ago? They didn't tell each other, but the team Halloween party, they both came dressed as the other guy. That's how simpatico those, those guys are. And, and so I, I think they'll be back together and, and Piran will, uh, Piran will get, get going. But he is, he is a little bit lost right now. It didn't end well for Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> okay, Shakespeare. No, I didn't know. I didn't know. I'm sorry. The weird thing was you and Gordo came dressed to the post-dispatch Halloween party as each other. That was pretty weird. Come on. Yeah, you didn't mention that. That was that surprising. Yeah. Okay, my question is for Derek and Rick. I, I really like what Lars Newtbar brings to the table. He's a left-handed power hitter, good speed, good defense. In your opinion, is he going to be playing for the Cardinals this year or the Tampa Bay Rays? <laughs> oh, you see what he did there. Go ahead. Uh, for the Cardinals. He'll be playing for the Cardinals this year. He'll be their left-handed uh, bat off the bench, their fourth outfielder. They, uh, he went off to Arizona Fall League to get playing time that he didn't get because he had won a spot in the majors, and he was a star there, um, one of the best – players there. Um, in fact, he and Juan Yepez, another Cardinals farmhand, um, were two of the best hitters in the league that's still going on. Uh, the Cardinals are not looking to move him. They're looking for ways to find him more playing time and how he fits into the matchup mania that Oliver Marmol wants to have in the lineup. So I, he'll be with the Cardinals, not with the uh, not with the Rays. And If the DH is in the NL, which we all expect the DH to be in the NL, the, there'll be that much more playing time possibly for him. Um, he's, he's a factor for them. They've been very impressed. And so is, so is other teams, by the way. I mean, like other scouts with other teams, they see him as one of the most improved prospects overall, a guy who was not ranked, was overlooked, and now is going to be, you know, possibly pushing for, you know, starts in the majors and a difference maker. I do think that they're probably still looking for somebody who can play outfield and, and first base as a left-handed hitter on, from a veteran standpoint. I don't know who that would be necessarily, but as I look at it right now, I've not seen Yepes play, but the Cardinals have no backup first baseman. What if Goldschmidt does actually get hurt one time? He plays every game, almost every inning, but maybe some month, some day, some week, he won't be. And who's that going to be? It was Carpenter before, and while he wasn't didn't have any, any kind of offensive traction in the last couple of years. He could play the position just like he could play third base. You could put him over there. They don't have a, a backup at first base, and, and I, I don't know about their backup at third base either, really, but especially first base. Got a question? Okay. Um, with the possibility of the designated hitter coming into play this year, is that something the Cardinals are looking at as far as a fourth outfielder, backup first baseman? Uh, or are they looking to like rotate different people through the DH spot? Oxy, you want to take a swing? Yeah, you know, I, I spoke to Mosellock the other day on the phone, and he mentioned Newt Barr as well as a guy he wants in there as much as possible, especially with that lefty bat. I think we in the media and the fans kind of get 
I don't want to say excited, but intrigued about Kyle Schwarber. And we see the home run numbers, and we see the OPS, the OPS plus, and the WRC plus, and all these acronyms. And I don't even know what they stand for, but I'm supposed to talk about them to make me sound smart. Uh, things like that. Uh, Schwarber is good at that stuff, but and I, and Kamish has mentioned this in his, his chat though he uh, he's not good at catching the ball if it's either thrown or hit to him, and uh, especially in playing first base, right, Commission, the little miscast there. Well, I, I like to take exception to the, the people that think any outfielder can play first base. Well, Carl Schwarber has proved conclusively <laughs> that is not the case. I do not know what Alex Cora was thinking of. They had a really good first baseman in Dalbeck who who didn't hit maybe toward the end of the season. But Schwarber almost got himself killed or other or somebody else killed over there in the, during the playoffs. He had no clue what was going on. And and he made he made a good play one time and just kind of shrugged like, hey, okay. I think Jose Martinez would like a word about proving that outfielders can't play first base, okay? Hey. He was there way before Schwarber was trying to uh, prove that. Uh, Nolan Gorman could also take some DH reps too, right? I mean, we know he's getting more comfortable at second base, but... Um, it's still a pretty new position for him. So maybe you go a mix of Yepes and, and Gorman. But my advice for the Cardinals would be, hey, it's a position that not a lot of traditional fans like. So go get a player who makes them like it. Go get a guy who's guaranteed to hit 30, 40 home runs. Um, maybe get Albert Pujols if he wants to come back to, to hit home runs against uh, you know certain kinds of pitchers. You have to kind of sell the DH. Most fans don't want it. So it could be, <laughs> could be a bit of a marketing opportunity if they want to take it. <laughs> Tracy, we got another one? Next question. Yeah, first I'd like to say, um, Rick, I'm 25. Um, I've been reading you since I was five years old. You can thank my aunt. Thank you so much for teaching me to love baseball. Well, thank and, you. Um, secondly, um, so you just fired a manager that in two full seasons won 90 and 91 games because they had philosophical differences with a computer. Do you think that analytics have gone too far? I think they can, but I think there's – you know, I'm, I'm slow to get on that boat, but I, I understand the amount of information that's available is, is just a tremendous. And there's something to be gained by, by uh, assimilating as much of that as you can into how you put together your lineup and how maybe you even manage a game a little bit. But I hope that, that managers and, 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 and even fans can appreciate the fact that there's still a lot of gut involved. Sometimes a manager has to ask himself, okay, what is the right move here for me to make? I don't care what it says on the spreadsheets. What do I feel is the right way to go here? And hope we don't ever lose that. And I, I, some teams don't seem to manage that way. Uh, they, the, you know, the front office helps them pick the lineup, and I, I, I'm not a big fan of that. But I want, like, I can't see LaRussa ever saying, okay, I'm going to go with what the front office says today on this lineup here. Well, I, I hope there are more guys like that. Well, let's, I'm, I admire the restraint that we got this far without a, a Schilt question. It's a good question. But let's talk about this idea about is, was Schilt anti-analytics? Because there, there are some who say that. My impression was no. Um, I, I think he liked a blend, but is now not having the same blend as the front office, meaning anti-analytics is now not agreeing with the front office what they want. Does that mean you're anti-analytics? I think it's curious to see how that label gets applied. Derek, what's your, what was your experience with, with Mike Schilt, how he used analytics, and maybe why um, it wasn't as much or potentially not the way the front office wanted to see them be used by Ali Marmel? Or does that not have anything to do with this at all? 
Yeah, I mean, you think back to spring training, right? Spring training 2020, and all we heard about was launch angle and exit velocity and how Matt Carpenter was hitting into bad luck and how the offense was going to be there in the end. And that was all from Schilt because he was buying into the, what the exit velocity told them and what the, you know, what the hit probability or, you know, on ba- or uh, slugging probability was for their contact. Um, so he bought into analytics. I, I mean, for me, it's hard to have watched the 2018 season and seen in the first half of the season how they never shifted on Anthony Rizzo. And on the second half of the season, they had the best defense in baseball because they shifted on hitters like Anthony Rizzo. Um, Schilt brought a, a curiosity and an introduction of analytics that was not there before. Um, he had a buy-in that he then brought over to both hitting and defense. Um, and also, you know, along with Maddox, the, the pitching style that was not there before. He talked all spring training about wanting to create matchups by rigging them not based on platoons left and right, but more so on style of pitching. They allowed, you guys might remember this, they allowed Tommy Edmond to bat right-handed against a right-handed pitcher because of analytics, and it was Schilt that was a champion of that. So I do think that there's this oversimplification that you're either all in on analytics or you're anti-analytics, and that's just false. It's the blending of the two where teams are, are really hitting the friction, right? You all can name teams. We can all name teams. Rick and I could probably name teams where they not only, the front office not only tells them the lineup, but gives them a script for when to call pitching. If you watch the wild card game, you saw a little bit of that where Dave Roberts walks out and Max Scherzer greets him with a handshake, <laughs> not the ball. I don't know if I've ever seen that. Max Scherzer put the ball in his glove and was like, nope and shook his hand and Dave Roberts steadfast with the numbers and steadfast with what they scripted took him out of the game out of a wild card game a one game elimination took the guy who finished third tonight in the Cy Young and was one of the best pitchers of his generation out you all watch that happen Um, so there is a blend here of tradition and analytics and it's is it 70 30 is it 80 20 or is it 100 and that's where the friction is as far as where Schilt, you asked about that. I mean, we, we got to get over the fact that what the Cardinals said it was, philosophical differences, they've used to describe every firing for whatever, 15 years. So get over the semantics. It was a personality clash. It was a personality difference. It was a concern on one end, the perception of the cost of tradition for modernizing the team, and the concern on the other end, what was good for the team while they could maintain tradition. That's where the clash was, and it had to do with personality at more, far more than analytics, not a buy-in on analytics or anti-analytics. This was a personality conflict that said, look, there's one year left on this contract. I don't want to work with you for the rest of that, for the rest of that contract. We're going to move on. We've had more discussions about managerial autonomy this offseason than we have in a long time. Absolutely. And into this discussion, as we are now wondering as a baseball-crazy city – what is the role of the manager? Is he simply following a script moving forward? In steps Ali Marmol, who says, I want to manage. I don't want to just follow a script. For Hoxie and Gordo, what do you make of, of Ali's first impression as manager? We've seen some things from him that suggest, hey, 
I'm not here to just be yes, be a yes man. Um, what have you guys made of, of Ollie's first impression in a, in a kind of a, a tough, really a tough press conference to win when you're you're replacing a manager who you both worked for and loved, but also um, you know a, a guy that uh, was fired kind of with some intrigue around him. I think the thing that struck me right away was something I, I noticed during the season, watching guys like Rocco Baldelli, although it was a terrible year for them, or uh, a Gabe Kapler, and some of the younger managers talk about uh, just you know managing game preparation, uh, the relationship with players, uh, you know just I kind of I you know not to be age discriminating against Mike because I'm an old guy and, and I've been around a lot of old guy managers who are really good. Joe Altabelli and Earl Weaver and, of course, here Whitey and Jim Fry and these guys. So I've only been around a lot of old-school managers. But, you know, it's just I, I like it. I, I, that's one trend I like. And plus, you, lo- you don't look silly wearing a, a uniform, too. Uh, but he's very – man, he is a very impressive man. He is, he's put in his time. He's done his work just like Mike did. And, you know, this is a guy that worked his way up from, you know, being a – a fringe minor leaguer to just putting the hard time in on the field, learning the craft of teaching and leading and succeeding. So I, I'm very impressed, and I think this is he's a, I think you have a guy that should have a long run here. He said it in his opening press conference. These things normally end in divorce. Uh, very seldom does a manager go out winning Game Seven of the World Series and then I guess take 10 years off and come back and manage again. But very seldom does it end that way. He's going to get fired at some point. That's, that's what he alluded to. And the fact is, again, use my favorite word, he, he needs to maximize his time. And Ben Fred, you wrote a great column about this, the idea that what did we learn from all this, that John Mozalek is the boss. So basically we have a situation where Oliver Marmol needs to simultaneously navigate being a manager his own way but also make sure he's not ruffling too many feathers with his boss. It sounds great, and hopefully he can pull it off. I love talking to Oliver Marmol. You know, he's a guy that wins, wins the press conference. He wins the conversation. He's a winning personality, and he uh, clearly gets the players. And I like the fact that he thinks outside of the box. I think it was you, Derek, that wrote about how he might um, look into having a, a matchup with the leadoff hitter just w- for one game, right, for one player, if he matches up well with that pitcher. Maybe if the, if the Harrison Bader is normally your eight hitter, but he's really good against this one pitcher, well, guess who's leading off that game? I like that. I like thinking outside the box. I'm excited about this, but that's not to say I didn't think Mike Schilt was great, too. We'll change gears or, or go ahead with a different question. Go ahead. So my original question was going to be about Mike Schultz, so I just thought of a new one. Uh, I was wondering if maybe you could compare and contrast how the DeWitts, Mosellock, and Gersh compared to Tom Stillman, Doug Armstrong, and maybe how that dynamic is similar, different in terms of how much influence they have over coaches, personnel, because I think it's on the forefront with the DeWitts and Mosellock kind of running everything. How does that compare to the Blues operation? Well, I'll take a swing. Uh, it's it's a little different, but in part, it's beneficial to the Blues in some ways because they are, they're in a salary cap league. Yeah. So the desire to win, you know, that's often judged in what you spend. And when you have a, a cap, you can point to it and say, well, we spent this much so that there's nothing we can spend beyond. Um, baseball doesn't have that. So you can always argue, um, whether it's fair or unfair, that they should have gone and got another player. They should have been more aggressive. They should have spent more. Um, I think, just in my coverage of the teams, the Blues seem to have more of a 
you know, I talked to Doug Armstrong after they, my first interview with him after they won the Stanley Cup, and he joked that it's just one more day until he gets fired. And, and I laughed, but I, he really operates like that. I mean, he, he views his job on the line every day. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, guys. The Cardinals seem to be more, more quick to say, look at what we've done. Um, we know what we're doing. And to their credit, there's a lot of things to point to. But this idea that they are they're, they're, they're one day more on the job or fired the next day, the urgency when you compare and contrast it to the Blues, I, uh, I, I think the, the fans can say, okay, that I think the Blues are, are more kind of in a win-now type mode. I bring up that the Cardinals have gone 10 years without winning a, a World Series championship, and a lot of people say, well, yeah, that's a lot of teams. But it, it's different for Cardinal baseball. They have the most championships in the National League. So I think that urgency, it's, it's felt and it's there, and the question will be how are they going to respond? Yeah, Feel I free think, to jump in. Yeah, I think one thing that strikes me, like eons ago, I covered the Blues here, and it was a completely different ownership. And they, they're, what, on their third owner since I was on the beat. So in some ways, the attitude that you describe reflects the fleeting nature of the ownership of the team, where DeWitt wants that stability and has made that stability kind of the calling card of his ownership because they intend to own it for a while, despite what you might have heard on the radio. But... <laughs> Um, whereas the Blues nearly moved not too long, or well, I mean, obviously decades ago, then were in the red deeply going into the lost year of 0405 and have really scrambled. Do you think about the ownership? Scrambled to find some sense of stability. And then when they got it with the current owner, who has everything going for him, great, it seems like a great owner, but had to reestablish some connection to a fan base. It was a little bit bruised by the previous owners. So naturally there was a, a, a bit of urgency there that resulted in a Stanley Cup. So I, I think it's somewhat not just the nature of the leagues, but also somewhat the nature of the fickleness of the ownership. I use the phrase first world problems, um, and Cardinals and Blues fans are, are fortunate to have both. Um, and, you know, St. Louis has seen owners that don't care. They've seen owners that are desperate to leave. Um, and, and that's something that I, I appreciate. You know, I, I can get hot about the Cardinals not going after a free agent I want or, or the Blues, you know, not winning a Stanley Cup. But I do have to compare it and contrast it to a guy who, you know, an owner in Stan Kroenke who, who took off. So there's, it's, all, it's all relative. And even, you know, even when you want the team to win more, I do say, hey, you know, they, if you look at the track records of the ownerships and wins, postseason success, annual relevancy – Look around baseball, and I know it's easy to roll your eyes at the sustained success stuff, but there are fan bases that go through years and years of not being relevant, and it's brutal. And baseball's doing nothing about it, um, and, and, and they won't even owners won't even speak out on it. So having a team that is competitive, it's great, and it should be appreciated. Still, though, you, you want to beat that drum for a World Series because it's, it's what the Cardinals' brand is. Go ahead, Tracy. Lily? Uh, this question is uh, for uh, both uh, Jeff Gordon and uh, also uh, Jim Thomas, uh, the hockey experts. Um. All right, Mizzou question after this. I know somebody's wanted to ask about that UMKC game. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Go ahead, the Blues. Uh, the question is uh, social media here lately. The uh, Blues have been giving up late goals, and the main people that have been blamed have been uh, uh, both Bennington and uh, 
Colton Perenko, and I'm wondering uh, if you got what you guys' thoughts are on the loss of uh, Petrangelo, Bo Meester, and uh, also Edmondson as far as the team uh, defense chemistry and the team grit. All right, do you want me to start on that, JT? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, the first of all, yeah, the uh, obviously it's tough on Colt 45 or 55 right now because you know you lose. Bo Meester, unfortunate circumstances. He wasn't going to play forever. Petrangelo is a really good two-way player. I'm still baffled as to why he really wanted to leave. I mean, they put a lot of money on the table, but at the end of the day, he wanted the new challenge, and he had kind of reached the break point, I think, through, through the whole process of, of free agency. Uh, it's, 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 the, it's the big question. Can you ever recreate that defensive chemistry? And they've got a lot of work to do. There's a ton of skill on this blue line. Tori Krug is very skilled. Brunovic skilled. Falk has been way better than overall than I think people anticipated in a different role. So there's, but there's some weakness there too. And so there's work to do on the blue line for sure. And, and I'll, I'll go to JT on this because Bennington's his guy. JT and Bennington have a thing. And <laughs> He's so, a Bennington whisperer. And, 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 and Bennington is super confident still. So JT, uh, are we still to believe in your guy Benner? Yeah, but but I do think he's pro probably since the Cup year, which was a year for the ages. He, he you know he's he's been uh, and I, I've used this phrase before. He's probably been overall closer to uh, uh, average than than awesome since since the Cup year, and he played a tremendous game in in Winnipeg. I, I think probably his his best game since Game Seven of the Cup. And then the last three games, not so much. Well, you, you know how it is in sports. It's in, in your jobs, too. It's kind of you're only as good as your last game or your last day at work or whatever. And so this, believe it or not, it seems like Jordan Bennington's been around for a while, but he's yet to play an 82-game season. So we, we haven't seen him over the long haul. Remember the Stanley Cup year? He didn't, he didn't really have any kind of a role until uh, early January. Then the next season, uh, in, in March, after 71 games, the season's over. And then last year, a 56-game condensed season. So this is the first time we're going to see Jordan Bennington over the long haul. I know this. He's as competitive as, as anybody you'll ever meet. I also know he has the skinniest legs of any <laughs> pro athlete, other than Isaac Bruce, that uh, I, I, I've ever seen. And, and he, 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 he wants the net every night. And if he wasn't motivated enough, the fact that he has a chance to make the uh, Canadian Olympic team really has him, uh, really has him uh, uh, motivated. It's not a great year. If you, if you look at the goalies from Canada that are currently in the NHL, you've got Mark andre Fleury. You've got Carey Price, who's had some personal issues and, and is now just coming back to the club and, and you look around there's there's nobody else so he wants to play in the uh in the olympics very badly so that's additional motivation and oh by the way the guy that's picking canada's olympic team just happens to be doug armstrong so i i i think over the long haul uh bennington will will be fine but in a way and i know this sounds strange he's maybe maybe still got a little bit to prove tracy's uh, at the horseshoe tables in the way back. Hey, this is for uh, Dave. Hey, so, obviously, you've been a Mizzou beat writer for 20 years. Um, you've seen some like highs and lows. What do you think it takes for Mizzou to get over the hump? And I guess beyond that, OU, Alabama, um, 
what's it, Georgia level, and like compete. And a follow-up to that, I guess, is like in your lifetime, do you think you'll ever see a Mizzou national championship team-wise? Uh, in wrestling, yes. <laughs> uh, softball, probably. Possibly. In journalism. Journalism win every year. Um, the banners are, are there. Um, what, what will it take to get over the, in football? Are you, are you talking? Um, you know, I, I've, I've, meant, I've used this for, for my loyal uh, chat uh, readers. I've used this phrase before, and, and Hawkman will know what I'm talking about here. Remember the season finale of The Office? Andy Bernard has this great quote where he says, I, I wish back in the good old days we, someone could have told us that those were the good old days. <laughs> Sometimes I think that those years from 07 to 2014 when Missouri won 10 games five out of eight years, maybe, maybe that was the ceiling. Um, that's really hard to do. It's really hard to do. Gary Pinkle did that, and I'm biased toward Gary because we, we wrote a book together, but also just that era, Missouri won 10 games in two conferences with four different quarterbacks in five years out of eight seasons. That was no fluke. It was really, really hard to do in the Big 12 and in the SEC. And it, sometimes it takes a little luck, um, but, but maybe, maybe that was the peak. And that's not to say that Eli Drinkwitz or whoever coaches Missouri 10 years from now, 20 years from now, can't do it too. But this league is absolutely brutal. It, ben was talking about the, the salary cap. There's, there's no salary cap in the SEC, that's for sure. And if there were, you know, Missouri would be on the, on the bottom end of that. It's, it's really, really hard to compete in the SEC when you're drawing 44,000 and you go play a game at Georgia and there's 92 there. Or you go to Tennessee and there's 100 there, 100,000. Um, it's just really hard to spend um, you know, with everybody you're competing with. So a lot of it's, you gotta, you gotta have the right people in charge, you gotta have the right AD, you gotta have the right coach. Uh, you can't miss on recruits. It's, it's not that you have to hit on the five stars, you just can't miss on, the, on, on too many kids because then all of a sudden you've got a roster that can't play in this league. So you've got to develop better than anybody else. You've got to identify talent better than anybody else. Um, hit, the, hit on the five stars when they're in your state or when, when they're in your region like, like Eli has with Luther Burden. Um, and then you've got to go outside your state and find some guys like Sam Horn and some others, the quarterback that he's got coming from Georgia. So uh, it's really, really hard. It's a hard job. Um, it's, it's, maybe it's not hard to win eight games, but it's really hard to win 10, and it's hard to do that over a long period of time. But um, one guy has done it in the modern age. Can somebody else do it? We'll find out. <laughs> You've got to get the players, right, to, to yeah. play at that level. Um, and Luther Burden, if you keep getting guys like him, it gets a lot easier. While we got Dave, let's change gears to basketball. Um, everyone here probably thinks I'm a Conzo Martin apologist. I, I like Zo a lot, but there's no defending a loss to UMKC when the the biggest uh, strength is that you've been better than the guy who lost to UMKC the last time around. Yeah. <laughs> um, for you, for Gordo, for Hoxie, what do you make of where Mizzou basketball is right now? It's a new look team, but that felt like a bigger loss than just uh, than just any other loss the other night in game two of the season. It's brutal. You know, it's one thing to lose, if you're going to lose to Illinois or Kansas, who they have to play in a span of, um, what, 19 days. They play Illinois, Kansas, and Kentucky all the way from Columbia. Um, that's tough. 
It's one thing to lose those games. It's one thing to lose on a Tuesday night at home to Ole Miss or South Carolina or somebody like that. Can't lose to Kansas City in the second game of the year. You, you just Any goodwill that you might have built up over the offseason, um, you know, that it disappears pretty quick. There was 6,000-something there the other night. Probably 1,000 of that, maybe two, were students. Um, they've, they've come out in full force for the first two home games. The rest of the crowd, not so much. There's just empty swaths of, of seats there. And, uh, you know, you, this team does not have elite talent. There's, there's no doubt there. They can get by with playing Conzo's style. I mean, they, if, they're, if they're gritty, if they are diving for loose balls all game long, winning the boards and doing those things that his teams usually do, then you can get by. But if you don't do those things and they didn't do them the other night, you're going to lose, and you can lose to a team like Kansas City. So um, you don't want to say one loss is good. You can't project the whole season out of one game, but if that team shows up again, it, it's going to be a long year. There's, there's no doubt. Gordo was an original antler. Um, Hoxie saw Mizzou basketball as, as good as it's been a long time um, when, he was, when he was at Mizzou and has, of course, covered guys who are in the NBA and maybe doesn't see enough NBA guys on the team. What do you guys make of where Mizzou basketball is right now? Both of you guys at the end there. Yeah, I'll just say real quick. Um, the rules have changed, so I'm interested to see how, uh, how Conzo handles that. It's, there's a lot of transfers. Transfer mania is going to be part of what happens in college basketball. Every year you can reload, and the guy down in Arkansas is going to get eight new players every year uh, by transfers. The other thing is you can now pay players. You know, what? You, the old days of your uh, – and, and Hockman knows way more about this than I do, and I'll <laughs> let him talk to it. Because he – I'm not saying he was a bag man per se for Mizzou, but he was probably close enough to the, to the scene to, to, to know what it looked like. Uh, but now it's all above board, so you can pay guys if you can get the, the car dealerships to step up. So there's no more excuses. If you're a coach now, you can always reload with transfers, and you can always pay guys. So you got to get better players if you're Mizzou because other teams are. And, you know, you're going to have to get the right transfers. Because otherwise, hey, Nate Oates is going to get those guys. Musselman's going to get those guys. It's a tough league. So, uh, Ben Hock, you sure. saw up close what it was like when they were able to just, you know, throw a little crease around. <laughs> what they're referring to is when I was a student at Missouri a lifetime ago, I was a student manager for my hair doppelganger, Quinn <laughs> Snyder, which was a really cool experience for me because I got to learn a lot about basketball and coaching and the way teams operate at, at age 18, age 19, and I saw nothing illegal, nothing illegal. Nothing. Um, but, no, you, 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 hit, you hit it on the head there. Jeff, in regards to the transfer portal has changed the game. Uh, you're, you're suddenly recruiting players who you haven't seen as high schoolers. You're recruiting guys who are on other teams that you're just seeing game film of. You're not developing relationships with them. You're just kind of, oh, uh, it's, it's almost like speed dating. And how often does that lead to a good relationship? And then the other thing is I think the position of point guard is so vital in college basketball. It's vital in the NBA, but it's also vital in college basketball. And look, last year uh, when, when things were going well for them, uh, their point guard and the coach were making it work. And when things weren't going well, well, <laughs> the point guard and the coach were, were clashing heads. So this year, who's going to take over that reign consistently? Who's going to ball handle? Who's going to distribute? Who's going to be a playmaker? Uh, I don't know. I mean, they have some names up there, but I just worried that they're not uh, top of the top half of the SEC level uh, just yet, and that Kansas City loss didn't help. Commission has Mizzou basketball takes. Well, as a Mizzou grad, 
a loss like the one to Kansas City, as, as Pontamita say in the past, if I could find my diploma, I would burn it. <laughs> wow. Oh. Hey. oh hey. Last night, quite wait, by accident. Wait, 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 wait. Did, didn't you burn it the last la time they lost to no, UMKC? La last night, quite by accident, I found it. So they're on notice. <laughs> Dang. There's the, there's the headline quote from this event. <laughs> Got another question. Tracy, go ahead. First of all, gentlemen, uh, I hope you realize how much you're appreciated by the St. Louis people in the area. You guys are all terrific. So, I'm going to switch topics just a little bit. I just got texted a question from my son in New York, and he wants to know, what do you think the outcome of the St. Louis Rams lawsuit is going to be, and if there's any chance that we could get a football team as part of a settlement? We should go to our resident lawyer, Ben Fredrickson. Uh, I'm going to defer to JT. This guy broke the news of the lawsuit, all right, while covering hockey. So uh, let's not forget that. Um, what do you think, JT? Oh, I, I think uh, St. Louis will, uh, will uh, have a rousing victory. It'll be the uh, legal version of the Norman Conquest, the 77 to nothing <laughs> football game that I covered in 1986 where Brian Bosworth, remember the Boz? It's 48 to nothing at halftime. In the second half, he's got his shoulder pads off. He's leaning over a fence, eating a hot dog, and, and talking to some of the Oklahoma fans. But the, the league always does better in uh, appellate court, and, and this thing will go on forever unless the settlement uh, offer reaches the stage where it's you know maybe a little more tempting than others. I, I don't know about getting a team. All I know is uh, the night of the vote, Greg Aiello, uh, vice president of communications, said he justified the whole thing. This is in Houston, and I was there with David Hun, and uh, David Hun covered the press conference, and I was down there covering the owners as they left immediately on their private jets to leave Houston to go back home. And Greg Aiello said, well, St. Louis is a baseball town after all. So as a St. Louisan, that aggravated me. We know St. Louis is a great baseball town, but St. Louis is a great sports town. The other thing that really aggravated me to a high degree, Jeff Gordon might call it a red ass, was when <laughs> the, the Dallas media said, well, this will get Jerry Jones in the Hall of Fame. What, ripping a team out of a city is cause to put this guy in the Hall of Fame? So that aggravated me. So I, uh, I'll be, you know, I'm busy. Obviously, my plate's pretty full with hockey. But if it gets to, uh, you know, a trial, if like Kroenke, Demoff, Jerry Jones, and Roger Goodell are uh, testifying, which I don't think they will, I, I, I'd buy a ticket to go see it. I, I, I would. I, I'd pay twenty. Would you buy a PSL? I, well, <laughs> actually, I was a charter member of PSL. My family wanted to go. They thought as it would be good for the city uh, to, to support the uh, team. But yeah, I, I'd pay 25 bucks to go in there and see uh, Kevin Demoff uh, squirm. <laughs> he, does that, he does that quite well, squirm. Um, tell your son thanks for the, the question. Um, I do think that St. Louis has a, a great shot in this lawsuit of winning, but I, I think the definition de depends on what is a win. Um, already, it seems to me, covering this um, from the beginning, that the goalposts have been kind of shifted. When, when this lawsuit was filed, often we heard people say, this is a joke, this won't work, this, this can't win, 
um, the NFL had that approach. I mean, they, they basically chortled, um, and, and that, that was their official comment, was a shrug and a laugh. And even people here in St. Louis said, this isn't going to work. This is throwing bad money after bad money. This is sour grapes. Well, no one's saying that anymore. And we know that uh, at least the St. Louis side of this lawsuit is not talking about that whole settlement offer. And it's funny to me that the NFL, which had a protective order, which pushed and pushed for a protective order in this case because they didn't want anything getting out, is now starting to float settlement offers to the public, which, which they're letting stuff leak out of this case. And it's not people here who are being told these things. It's people who cover the league. So they at first put a cone of silence around it, and now they're starting to float trial balloons trying to impact the influence of the case. I truly believe that. I've not heard anything from anyone I trust about an expansion team. Um, and and I, I would tell you if I heard differently, I don't think St. Louis should get back into bed with the NFL if given the opportunity, but I would tell you if I thought it had it, I don't think it does at this time. Uh, things can change, clearly. Um, I think this is about money. Um, I think it's about a lot of money. Um, if St. Louis truly feels like the case was good enough to reject a $100 million settlement offer, um, that compare that to when it, this started, um, when they when they had, you know, I kind of thought if they get 18 mil back that they spent trying to keep the team and what turned out to be a, a ripoff, that would be pretty good. Well, here they are with enough through discovery that they feel like they can go to court and go to trial for billions in, in damages and punitive damages. And the way they've handled this thing has been amazing. They've simply, they've turned the NFL against each other. They, were, they got all these cell phone records and they got all these owners who were on the Los Angeles committee and they sat them down for depositions and they said, okay, well, here's how Missouri law works. You guys violated Missouri contract law and now you have to tell us everything you're worth because we're going to pursue punitive damages against you. And Jerry Jones is going, I don't tell anybody what I'm worth. I don't, his wife, I don't know, is he married? His wife probably doesn't know what he's really worth and he's got to tell it to St. Louis. So they're fighting this tooth and nail to the point that there's a hearing coming in early December that's going to decide if certain owners are in contempt of court and if they are not finally handing over the information that's required of them for potential punitive damages when this goes to trial in January, they could basically, the judge could be in a spot where he says, hey, whatever punitives they come for, you're going to have a hard time arguing against because you didn't participate in the process. So they're hearing that and they're telling Stan, settle this, end this. But there's this, now this new fight going on about what exactly he's on the hook for. As much as everybody wants to see Stan get hammered for the full cost of this, I know that would be popular here, he might have some wiggle room in this indemnification agreement where he can spread the cost around. If you read the language of it, Roger Goodell basically gets to decide. So I think as this thing nears a trial, Goodell and Kroenke are going to be buddy-buddy, and they're going to be talking about what does that number have to get to to make this thing go away. Um, it's going to have to be more than $100 million, um, and but I don't think it's going to include a team. And, and I, I, will, I will gladly be wrong and, and tell you differently if I hear that, but I haven't heard that at this time. Can we, can we get a quick round of applause for the job that Ben here has done yeah. on this story? I don't, I don't know what Stan Kroenke dreams about at night, but I'm pretty sure his nightmares have a Ben Fredrickson byline on them. <laughs> He's been rabid on this thing. You know, quick, and the national media is just now picking up on it, on stuff he's been writing for months, so way to go.
Thanks, Bam. Well, we've done a great job as a news side, too. I mean, uh, Joel Courier has done a lot on this. JT mentioned uh, David Hun, who's now an editor. I mean, that's how long this thing's been going on. A guy who was writing about it as a reporter is now an editor. Um, so we're, we're, we were determined to be there, and we'll continue to be there, and we'll have a seat in the uh, trial if, uh, if it does come around. We'll see. You got another question? Uh, yeah, I have a question on uh, college athletics in general. I understand how the college athletes would like their piece of the pie on the trillions and trillions of dollars that those sports make, but how is it reasonable to expect that the new name, image, and likeness rules are not going to be subject to tremendous abuse by wealthy alumni wanting to make their school's team better? And a second part, um, what is the NCAA creating any rules to prevent that from happening, and if so, what those are? And thirdly, I guess you especially, Dave, I think I yep. read in your article where Mizzou actually has a person or a department whose job it is to guide their athletes along the way to make the most money off of name, image, and license, and is that what's going to be happening? Thank you. Yeah, Missouri has a, a third-party company. Um, it's actually founded, and, and one, of our, one of our interns, um, not interns, we don't have interns, we have, we have campus correspondents, Bennett Durando, um, wrote a really good story about a year and a half ago about this. Uh, it's a company that was launched by a former University of Nebraska linebacker who knew they actually, you know, went to school there and uh, <laughs> graduated and got jobs. But he, um, he, he started this great company that is a third-party third type deal that works as kind of a go-between between the athletes and the schools to sort of manage these, these deals that they're doing. And Missouri uses that company um, just to, uh, extra pretty much have an extra set of eyeballs on these contracts that are going through through the athletes and these companies that they're endorsing to make sure that they're they're following all of the state laws because every state has different laws on these things um, and and just to make sure that they're all in the up and up and they're not you know working for don't have endorsement deals with uh, any illicit companies or anything that's illegal or, or just you know not in the best interest necessarily of the athlete or the school um, so yeah Missouri was very got on the, the, the ground floor of that, and they, they were very quick to, uh, and that's credit to Jim Sturt, former AD, because he partnered with that company pretty early on. Um, you know, will it lead to abuse uh, with, with boosters? Um, that stuff's been going on for 100 years. Now it's just, instead of under the table, it's, it's over the table. Will it create um, some illegal situations or some illicit situations. I don't know. I, I just think, any, if anything more, it's it's almost a more of an even playing field now. I mean, if you're the car dealer in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, giving thousands of dollars to the quarterback, um, you can do that in Boise now. You can do that in Columbia, Missouri. You can do that anywhere. So if anything, I think it kind of levels the playing field. Every school has rich boosters. There's no reason now they can't get involved and get more engaged in this. The NCAA has basically said, hey, we've got some very basic guidelines for this. All the state legislatures have some very basic guidelines for it. Missouri's state legislature, their, their law for this is actually one of the less restrictive ones around the country um, as far as what athletes can or can't do with these deals. They're basically hands off and saying, hey, we're, we're, we're tired of legislating this. We're tired of enforcing all these rules. Um, go at it. Now, there, there, there are some things they can't do, and, and you know, Missouri has a department, their compliance department looks over those things pretty closely. Um, but, you know, I, there was a huge rush and a lot of talk about this when it first started on July 1st. It's kind of simmered down a little bit since then. 
I don't think anybody's really getting rich off these deals, at least at Mizzou. There's some athletes that have some, some okay deals, some recruits that are going to have some okay deals. But for the most part, I think a lot of the athletes kind of look at this like, oh, maybe I'll make, a, make some, some money I can spend on the weekends and maybe help pay some bills and things. But I, I don't think anybody's really getting wealthy off of these deals. We'll, we'll see. We'll see how it evolves over time. And uh, this, the smart, savvy coaches will be the ones who use it in recruiting, use it to their advantage. Uh, the ones who try to ignore it and don't want to take use it to their best advantage, they're they're going to be left behind, frankly. And um, you know, they just the coaches that are a little more set in their ways, and and don't want to adapt to the times. So we'll we'll see how it develops. Ben, we've got the last question. Oh, last one already. All right, I got one more. After I've got this. A, no, I've kidding. got a point to make and a question to ask. Uh, one point to make is why are we wasting so much time talking about a kangaroo be- losing basketball team when we have SLU just a couple miles away that's very promising and probably a ranking team by the end of the season. Also, my question is, uh, what's happened with the Battle Hawks? Caw! Caw! <laughs> <laughs> I can handle the, the Battle Hawks one. I think the Rock is like too busy. Um, he keeps saying the Battlehawks and the XFL are coming back, but every time I look up, he's in like a new movie. Um, and then I think maybe he's going to run for president. I don't know. No politics. commissioner. I think. Stick to sports, right? But um, the the XFL does say it is coming back in, I believe, 2023. As far as if if it will be in St. Louis to be determined, if they come back and don't put a team in St. Louis, that would be idiotic. They lapped the field and everything from attendance to merchandise sales to social media interactions. Um, why you would bring that league back and not have a team here, I don't know. That wouldn't make a lot of sense. So stay tuned on that. Billikens basketball, it's, it's, I don't know what Travis is doing, but he needs to like go sit down with a voodoo specialist and figure out how to stop bad things from happening to his team as soon as the season starts. <laughs> Um, Javante Perkins is a great player, but now they're kind of in a challenge where they're trying to figure out how to play without him. And I think they're going to be an A-10 contender, but I'm not, uh, I'm not sure what their ceiling is without Javante. Gordo, you do as much uh, area hoops uh, riding as anybody. What do you make of, of the Billikens and their chance to overcome the Perkins loss? Uh, it's just so sad because it's all the stuff that's happened. But they're going to be a good team. I mean, Jimerson's scoring off the dribble point guard shooting the ball uh yuri's doing a good job there you got two guys in the middle they're, they're not french but they're you know between them they'll, they'll do solid jobs it's just as you saw against memphis i mean they said wow these guys now this is what top 10 looks like obviously slew's not going to be top 10 but travis ford is an amazing coach and those guys will defend and those guys will rebound and he's got enough kids on that team he's got some depth they can't replace perkins who's one of the best mid-range shooters you're going to see it's, which is just, a, just horrible that he got hurt after he decided to come back. But I'd love to see him just go into the tournament and this time go on a run. I, I don't know what happened last year. It just said they had a horrible flat game. I, I Just look out. I think they can do something. And, and, and oh, by the way, that conference, I don't mind the fact that Loyola's going to that conference adding a little more uh, pizzazz to it. So that'll be good for SLU, having that rivalry uh, going forward. But uh, Travis Ford, hell of a coach. But like Ben Fred said, oh, my God. How, how many horrible things could happen to one program and, and, and he could just soldier on and get results? He's got to have, uh, have some luck counseling thrown in there. I want to end on a positive. Derek, Rick, Hoxie, tell us that we're going to have a full 162-game baseball season 
in 162 with all this labor strife. Shortened spring training, uh, okay, whatever, no one cares. Everybody, 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 everybody. Oh, you guys go, you guys get to go hang out on the beach. We gotta work. So shortened spring training, that's fine. Tell us we're gonna be playing 162 in 2022 to end this, please. Kamish, please. I say there's 162. Hey! Eric. Now, was there a shortened spring training? Possibly. That's all right with you, right? No. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Kamish likes, uh, likes his grouper tacos down there in uh, Jupiter. What about you, D? I, I mean, I'm, I'm worried uh, about how hard it's going to be and how much you know, animosity and acrimony there's going to be between now and then, um, but there's so much at stake. I mean, there's just so much at stake that it has to be a full season, and they'll find a way to play 162, um, hopefully without seven-inning doubleheaders wedged in on the weekends to make up for it. But um, there's just a lot at stake. Um, There's a lot of money, first and foremost. There's the hope of expansion in the near future, you know, to reclaim some of the money lost from the last few years. That's at stake. There's national TV deals that are at stake. And not only that, but there's goodwill at stake. Um, you know, you hope that the country's coming out of the pandemic by next spring for full houses all across baseball. That's something that they didn't have from the start this past year. And whenever the country has had something, a national tragedy, a war, a pandemic, at the end, they turn their lonely eyes to baseball. And baseball has been there. Baseball's been there at the end of World War II. Baseball's been there after 9-11. Baseball was the first one there. You think of the moments after national tragedies and baseball is a part of it. What happens if it's not there? And that's at stake for both sides and they really have to take that to heart. Um, you know, it takes a deadline to move. Um, that's true in baseball. That's true in newspapering. Um, it takes a deadline to move and the deadline isn't there until really the money doesn't start coming in and that's around March. The, the one side point I'll say here is that that lockout's going to start about the time teams are going to start to sell tickets for Christmas. Watch how that changes the equation, too, because they have not had a chance to sell full season, with the exception of the teams in Texas, um, you know, across teams. That, that's going to start getting really acute for some of the owners, and we'll see if things pick up pace then. Benjamin, are you optimistic? I'm optimistic there will be a 162-game baseball season next year. What I'm pessimistic about is that the game itself might remain the same in regards to how long the games are to how slow the games are and i hope that in the next couple years if not decades people smart people like theo epstein the same people who are so smart that they changed baseball i don't say broke baseball but changed baseball into the analytics can also come up with ways to create more excitement create more action and make the games not as we talk about the the three true outcomes of walks strikeouts and home runs uh, maybe, I don't know, some steals and some uh, extra base hits. But I believe in baseball. I believe that people that own baseball teams and represent baseball players also believe in baseball, and they'll make it happen, and we'll be at 162 games this year. like to hear it. Our, I think our pace of play tonight was pretty good. Um, thanks to you guys for, for playing along, and thanks for coming here. It's great to see your faces. Thank you for subscribing, for reading, um, and we'll do it again sometime. So thanks again. Get home safe, everybody, and thank you again on behalf of the entire Post-Dispatch Sports Department. You're free to go.
keep an eye out for other sports on tap events because we do these pretty regularly, at least annually. And you can find out information at stltoday.com about them. You can also find all of the coverage, Blues coverage, Mizzou coverage, the columns from Gordo, from Hawkman, from Fredrickson at stltoday.com and in the pages of the Post-Dispatch. That's also where you can find all of the constant Cardinals coverage and, of course, the best podcast in baseball. Brought to you by Closets by Design. The best podcast in baseball will continue throughout the offseason. Whether there's a work stoppage or not, there will not be a podcast stoppage. Hope everyone has a wonderful Thanksgiving week and a beginning to the holiday season. Look forward to talking to you soon. For the best podcast in baseball, I'm St. Louis Post-Dispatch baseball writer Derek Gould. Stay healthy, stay informed, and stay tuned.